From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Did the presence of a black-majority population in Washington, D.C. force the U.S. empire to abandon Jim Crow apartheid? We spend this hour speaking with historian Gerald Horn about his new book, and this one is about D.C. You have these numerous African nations coming to independence, but the D.C. police still were treating uh, certain African students at Howard University with the same kind of violence as if they were U.S. Negroes. These hardened white supremacists would make sure that they were represented on the congressional committees that supervised and administered Washington. There was a real fear that black people being treated so atrociously would be attracted uh, to the socialist project. And Actually, there was something to that. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, despite the suffocating racism in the United States at the turn of the 20th century, which certainly infected D.C., the nation's capital was still one of the best places for Black people to be on the East Coast of the United States. Emancipation Day is celebrated uniquely here in D.C., marking April 16, 1862, when President Abraham Lincoln signed a law freeing all enslaved people in the district. And this was nine months before Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Yet Gerald Horn, in the introduction to his new book, describes a scene of the race riot in 1919 here in the district where the historian Carter G. Woodson barely escapes the violence of a white mob. We're going to explore his new book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And... Listeners know that Professor Gerald Horn is the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. And for nine years now, On the Ground is celebrating its ninth anniversary this month, May Day, May 1st. He has been our geopolitical analyst. So I am honored to talk to him about his new book. So Gerald, in this particular city slash district, Black people were flourishing below the Mason-Dixon line. And here, Blacks in power had not been destroyed, like, for example, in the Wilmington, North Carolina coup and massacre in 1898. So I want to start our conversation by asking you, you know, what are some of the dynamics at work here contributing to the duality of what existed here in in Washington? Well, it's well that you mentioned 1862 and the prelude to the Emancipation Proclamation, because from the level of generalization, you have to ask the question, how was it that this white supremacist state, speaking of the United States of America, managed to have a capital that oftentimes is referred to as Chocolate City? Obviously, that's a contradiction that's worth exploring. And I do think that it goes back to the 1862 emancipation, which then attracts many Black people from Virginia, from the Carolinas, from other parts of Dixie uh, to the district. 
and helps to create uh, what was by the middle of the 20th century, a predominantly uh, black district, a capital of a white supremacist state. Now, with regard to flourishing, uh, obviously it's relative. Uh, obviously, uh, we're speaking of it flourishing in relationship to, for example, what was going on in Wilmington, North Carolina, 1898, where there was a, a bloody coup and massacre, et cetera, uh, which was par for the course for a good deal of Dixie. But I think in terms of explaining Washington, D.C., uh, one probably should begin by talking about Howard University, the hilltop capstone of Negro higher education started right after the U.S. Civil War, which then begins to attract a substantial number of Black people, not only to study there, but also to teach there uh, with a law school, a medical school, ultimately a business school. And then that helps to create a kind of core of black intellectuals that then play a major role in the founding and formation of the NAACP and ultimately uh, helping to staff uh, forces to the left of the NAACP. And I think the other critical aspect of Washington that folks need to focus on today is that as a capital city, it also was a city where there are many embassies and that plays a critical role not only during the uh, Jim Crow era, when you have uh, diplomats from Africa and the Caribbean uh, traveling to the district and uh, not necessarily uh, being enticed or uh, enthralled by being subjected to Jim Crow. And that creates a dynamic that leads to the retreat or the erosion of Jim Crow in the district and ultimately uh, nationally. I mean, to give you one example amongst many, after the year of Africa, 1960, for example, when you have these numerous African nations coming to independence, but the D.C. police still were treating uh, certain African students at Howard University with the same kind of violence as if they were U.S. Negroes. But when that happens, you have staff from the Nigerian embassy intervening, you have the U.S. State Department intervening, etc. Likewise, when you have these African and Caribbean nations trying to uh, buy embassies, oftentimes in upscale district neighborhoods, you find that uh, many of the Euro-American neighbors are objecting because they do not want to be in the same vicinity uh, as these mm -hmm. Black people. Mm -hmm. But then you have the State Department intervening on behalf of these African nations and Caribbean nations because they're trying to curry favor with these nations in this Cold War contestation with the socialist camp. So uh, this is part of the dynamic that makes Washington unique. And if there's one message that I'm seeking to convey amongst many messages in this book is that uh, the progressive movement in Washington needs to increase its contact with the international community in this relatively small town because that historically has been part of our secret sauce. You talked about the Cold War and that kind of jumps ahead in the story a little bit. 
this book begins in the early 1900s. And so before the official Cold War later, after World War II, there was a greater fear and antagonism toward the the Russian Revolution. And how did that impact Black people, especially in 1919 and here in the district? Well, there was a real fear that Black people being treated so atrociously would be attracted uh, to the socialist project. And actually, there was something to that. not only because the nascent uh, Communist Party uh, quickly developed a number of Black cadre, I'm thinking of William Patterson, for example, who I wrote a biography of, a Black lawyer who led the struggle for the Scotts Bureau Nine. These are the nine Black youth in Alabama uh, who are arrested circa 1931 on spurious grounds of sexual molestation of two Euro-American women headed towards the death penalty like so many before or since, before Patterson and the U.S. Communist Party and the International Labor Defense, which they helped to found in conjunction with Moscow, uh, start a global campaign against Jim Crow, not unlike the global campaign against apartheid. And Mm -hmm. this is a signal victory when the Scottsboro Nine are not executed. And in fact, it helps to change the criminal law. And it's the first step towards the ultimate erosion of Jim Crow in the 1950s. Howard University, once again, is critical in this story, not only because of the presence there of many on the left, But keep in mind that Marcus Garvey's movement, Marcus Garvey being the Jamaican migrant uh, who starts the Universal Negro Improvement Association, uh, which is a sizable organization with chapters not only throughout the United States, but also in the Caribbean and Southern Africa and East Africa, et cetera. Uh, He is a frequent visitor uh, to Howard University, and also he recognizes the importance of the Bolshevik revolution because obviously when you have the secession of Russia, the largest nation by territory and population from the capitalist world, this also represents a deep fissure in white supremacy, particularly when the capitalist countries begin to wage an above-ground and underground war to strangle the infant in his cradle, as Winston Churchill once said about the Bolshevik Revolution. So the Bolshevik Revolution, 1917, has enormous impact upon racism uh, in the United States. In fact, uh, I've argued that if you look over the centuries, you see the transition from religion being a major marker in society, beginning the 16th century, then with the rise of England, then the British Empire, you see race, that is to say, white supremacy and the denigration of those not inducted into the hollowed halls of whiteness as being a major marker. Then the Haitian Revolution helps to disrupt that particular odious system, 1791 to 1804. And then that sets the stage for the rise of class as a marker of society. And we're we're still 
in the midst of this grand transition towards socialism, uh, towards expropriating the, the ruling class, uh, et cetera. And Washington, D.C. has been in the forefront of that struggle historically. And so I just wanted to follow up about Patterson, because during that whole fight for the Scottsboro Boys, for example, uh, was that largely centered here in D.C.? Well, I wouldn't say it was largely centered in D.C. because it was a global movement. I mean, you had protests for the Scottsboro Nine in Europe, in Australia, in Lebanon, in Southern Africa. Was he based here? Patterson was largely based in Harlem, but you had a substantial core of Scottsboro activists in Washington, particularly in Washington, D.C. I'm thinking of Alpheus Hunton, a man who was a professor at Howard, but was very active in the anti-Jim Crow movement in the 1930s Mm -hmm. uh, in the District of Columbia. He had a comrade, Doxy Wilkerson, who likewise was a professor at Howard and was active in the anti-Jim Crow movement. uh, uh, Alfie Sutton, of course, goes on to be a close comrade of the great Paul Robeson, a frequent visitor to the district, speaking of the activists and actor and socialists and singer. Uh, Alpheus moves from Howard to work in New York with Robeson and the Council of African Affairs uh, before it falls victim to McCarthyism. And he winds up uh, moving to West Africa, working with Du Bois on the Encyclopedia Africana in Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana. And then with the overthrow of Nkrumah, uh, Hunton moves on to Guinea-Conakry under Seko Toure and ultimately dies in Zambia uh, under the leadership then of Kenneth Kaunda. And Kaunda, in fact, uh, weeps at uh, Alpheus Hunton's grave when he passes away uh, some decades ago. And so, once again, one cannot overstate the importance of Howard University, the importance of radicalism at that particular campus which then has national impact. So I want to go back to 1919. And, you know, when it comes to the race riots, where here in D.C. and cities all over the United States, Black people were attacked. We know that unlike in a number of of communities under siege, Blacks in D.C. were able to fight back. They had guns. I think you said in the book that one minister had like a machine gun and had like kind of a barricade set up to protect his neighborhood. But you also quote a journalist, John Bruce, who was speaking from Kansas City, saying that, quote, the real cause of these outbreaks, meaning the violence, I guess, against black people, was the unusually large number of Negroes in public office, end quote. And he noted that these, quote, well-dressed, well-housed, educated Negroes were frequently seen in automobiles on Pennsylvania Avenue, end quote. So, the book goes on to explain how this class resentment or jealousy mixed with the virulent racism. And it reminds me of the Tulsa massacre, which would happen two years later with black people in Oklahoma, not firing back and under assault, even from the air, from air with airplanes. So I know it's complex, but talk about the beginning of the black elite here in Washington, DC. I know it's related to Howard, but some some other aspects of it and how it functioned in the early part of the last century here and under Jim Crow. Well, first of all, the fighting back is critical 
setting an example for the entire country, that is to say the entire Black community nationally. Because recall that this was seen to be unusual. You, you know, I'm sure, what happened in Atlanta circa 1906 when there was a virtual pogrom against the uh, Black community uh, of Atlanta with uh, Black people literally uh, butchered. Uh, W.B.E.B. Du Bois was in Atlanta at that time, and he writes very eloquently about that. In Washington, by way of contrast, as you suggested, for various reasons, you had Black people who were armed. And I dare say that their ability to inflict pain upon the racists was a restraining factor in helping to discipline these racists and make them think twice and thrice about trying to launch yet another pogrom. Uh, I would also add the footnote that uh, it probably set an example uh, for Tulsa because there was a, a kind of fight back in Tulsa, admittedly uh, not as significant as it was in the district. But once again, one has to understand that because of the fact that the district had a relatively a small population, but it was the center of the federal government, which begins to expand even before the New Deal of the 1930s. And that creates uh, certain positions, particularly uh, union positions uh, for Black people in certain agencies, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, uh, not is uh, not the level that some might have desired, uh, but uh, helping to create a sector uh, of employment uh, that then in turn was attracting Black people from across the country and particularly from the South, uh, to move to the district. And this is one of the reasons why in the first few decades of the 20th century, uh, Washington, believe it or not, was seen as the city where there was more opportunity for Black people than any other. Now, of course, once again, this is a relative concept. I'm not trying to portray Washington, D.C., a Jim Crow Dixie town as some sort of Shangri-La or some sort of paradise. I'm only comparing it to the horrors that were afflicting Black people, particularly in places like the aforementioned Atlanta, uh, in Houston, for example, where you also saw the launching of pogroms, etc.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverm. So we are talking about Gerald Horn's latest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. I've been speaking quite a bit in the last few minutes about Washington, D.C., but listeners should realize there is a lot of history in this book about the other local universities. For example, George Washington University, which was largely segregated, no Black people allowed until the 1950s. This may have something to do with the fact that its prized alumnus was J. Edgar Hoover, the leader of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, which hounded uh, Dr. Martin Luther King mercilessly. But the other universities were hardly better. I'm speaking of Georgetown University. I'm speaking of American University. I'm speaking of Catholic University. And I'm speaking in particular of the University of Maryland and College Park. Mm. Taxpayers support it, but steadfastly for the longest refused to admit any black students. And of course, not to hire any black faculty or even staff for that matter. Mm. So there's a lot of local history in this book that I think will be very important for the audience to acknowledge because I think it prepares them to go into battle uh, with these major employers who, despite the changing of the times, still bear more than an iota of the kind of Jim Crow obstinance that has marked their history. Because uh, let's face it, if you take a, a university like Georgetown, for example, it's probably fair to say that they've uh, tolerated Jim Crow for longer than they've uh, tolerated desegregation, for example. Mm-hmm. So this is a history that needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be understood. Now, you know, speaking of Jim Crow, you know, I have to say, you know, you talked about universities, but, you know, I moved here in 1995. And even at that point, you know, I had some of my friends who grew up here remind me because I had a young son, a, a toddler with me, and I would try to you know, take him places. I would take him to, you know, uh, on the weekends or when I had a chance to take vacation, we would go to the parks, we would go to the beach. We would, And I had my friends tell me that, okay, those places that you just go to without thinking right now, when I grew up here, you know, we couldn't go there. They're saying we couldn't go there. Or if we went there, we were like some of the shock troops, you know, kind of integrating places, you know, and I'm, you know, here in the, the nineties taking these things for granted, but with them schooling me (laughs) when I would go to the beach and I would go to different places, I would think about it. I would think about like, going into restaurants thinking, wow, when did this place, you know, start to integrate? When did they, and I would be conscious of where I was spending my money and thinking about who was serving me and, you know, how long have they even been doing that? You know? So I I think it's very important, this history that you're telling, not just in terms of the universities, but just a lot of the social amenities that a lot of us who are maybe new transplants or, or people who might be passing through or just want to know about the D.C. region, it's really important for us to know this history. 
But also speaking of Jim Crow, D.C. wasn't really as infected by it as other places early in this last century. But then U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, he actually instituted Jim Crow laws where there had been none. And actually, just last year, 2022, the D.C. Council voted to change the name of the district largest high school, which had been named after Wilson. And to instead honor the school's first black teacher, Edna B. Jackson, and Vincent E. Reed, the school's first black principal. So reading the history that you have and thinking about that must have been really wild to like live in a city where compared to many other places, especially in nearby Maryland and Virginia, there was some just maybe a smidgen more freedom. And then all of a sudden you have this Woodrow Wilson come in and institute all these Jim Crow rules that were in existence just routinely throughout the South? Well, Woodrow Wilson, despite being governor of New Jersey before he was U.S. president, was a Virginian. And Virginia, in many ways, was probably as far to the right with regard to Jim Crow and racism as any Southern state which may come as a shock to those who are familiar with the history of, say, Texas and Florida today. But I should also mention, I went through this litany of schools, and I should have mentioned Gallaudet as well. That is to say, this university that specialized in instructing those who had problems or issues with regard to hearing, for example, was a Jim Crow institution. You had mental hospitals in Washington, D.C. that were Jim Crow institutions. You had sports teams that did not uh, employ uh, black players. I'm thinking of the team once known as the Washington Senators. First uh, Washington, first in war, as was said, first in peace and last in the American League. Although the Washington Senators, interestingly enough, to show you the animus and the animosity towards Black Americans, oftentimes, believe it or not, they would hire and give contracts to players from Latin America that had a certain melanin content. And then there was the team, you are celebrating the ouster of Daniel Snyder and the forcing him to rename the team the Washington Commanders, but Daniel Snyder compared to a previous owner, speaking of George Preston Marshall, uh, probably would be seen as enlightened, believe it or not, compared to this man who also refused to hire uh, Black players as well until being forced and pressured by the Kennedy administration because he wanted to use a stadium uh, that was receiving a federal dollars. And so This is an obvious contradiction internationally, because then as now, uh, Washington was proclaiming itself to be a citadel of freedom, to be a paragon of democracy and liberty, and yet it was treating the bulk of its population, speaking of Black people, atrociously. And how we were able to dig ourselves out of that deep hole, that deep hole known as Jim Crow, lies and rests at the heart of this book, and I think also has lessons for us today. 
Absolutely. So I'm thinking about uh, in terms of Wilson and what he did, and and I, I should probably include more details. So Woodrow Wilson, who served as the 28th president from 1913 to 1921, so that's the era that we're talking about. And when I think about his presidency and the kinds of Jim Crow rules that he enacted, like, I think the book talks about how, you know, people who had been, you know, nice, you know, what they considered, you know, good government jobs, they found themselves like all of a sudden segregated within the departments. They couldn't use the cafeteria or, you know, they couldn't go certain places within the federal government because Wilson instituted this types of segregation And because we tend to think of racial progress as going linear and going forward, but his administration was an example of how definitely things can go backward, as we've seen, you know, even in my lifetime, the struggle has to continue. So even after, you know, Wilson is president, you know, decades later, you talk about how elected officials coming to D.C. still thought there was like too much integration, like you know, the most hardened Dixiecrats would come here and be stunned that white people and black people were on streetcars together or that the streetcars weren't segregated. So that legacy kind of continued. And I just was kind of really thinking about talking about the street and like places like public amenities like streets, streetcars as being the kind of the site of clash and resistance here in D.C. And this is before... Uh, Rosa Parks, or just talk about a little bit about that history and just how people lived and the boundaries of Jim Crow and resistance. Well, one of the unique aspects about Washington, D.C. is that it tended to attract the most hardcore white supremacists because those would be the men, and they were mostly men, who would be elected in South Carolina in North Carolina, in Florida, in Texas, to be sent to represent white supremacist interests in the district. And so Washington traditionally had a surplus of the most hardened white supremacists because that is who would be elected. And at the same time, since it was a federal district and Congress then as now had a role and administering the internal affairs of the district, actually even more so uh, in the first half of the 20th century than today, these hardened white supremacists would make sure that they were represented on the congressional committees that supervised and administered Washington. And also your listeners need to realize that Part of the anti-Washington animosity that is part and parcel of the ideology of today's conservatism stems in part from really continuing upset at the fact that it was Washington, D.C., that is to say, (laughs) the president at that time, speaking of Lincoln, who expropriated their most prized possession, speaking of enslaved Africans, without compensation, which then generates not only antagonism against the former property, but antagonism against Washington, D.C. itself as being the city, or at least the city that housed the president, 
who then expropriated this private property without compensation. And at the same time, uh, this sets the stage for the continuing hostility towards socialist projects because socialism was perceived, not necessarily inaccurately, as being part of a process that would involve, once again, the expropriation of private property. And as ever, uh, Black people became a lightning rod uh, for this hostility because Black people oftentimes were the constituency that was less anti-communist and less anti-socialist than other constituents, which then led to even more uh, punishment and pulverizing against them. Likewise, one of the points that I stress in this book is that those who understandably and justifiably are disgusted or concerned about the homeless crisis in Washington, D.C., should realize that this is nothing new, that an unhoused population has been part and parcel of the district for decades. Uh, For the longest time, you had uh, Black people in particular being disproportionately represented in terms of this unhoused population. That too is nothing new. So, you know, it's so interesting, Gerald, that you mentioned this kind of influx of Dixiecrats who try to meddle in district business and and also kind of export that same type of ideology of white supremacy in, in terms of U.S. foreign policy. So just to give you one example, just this week, we had Kevin McCarthy, the uh, House Speaker, uh, cancel uh, a commemoration, try to cancel a commemoration of the Nakba, the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, the expulsion, massacre of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians to create the state of Israel. And so that, that commemoration is, is coming up. But anyway, he tried to cancel it. And then Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian American in Congress, she made other arrangements so that the commemoration could go on. And so in the process of this, uh, McCarthy tries to call this basically saying that it's not true, that it's anti-Semitic tropes like the Nakba didn't happen. And it just reminds me of this whole attempt to erase history happening here in this country by members of the same party uh, in terms of these so-called anti-CRT laws. What are they calling it? critical race theory, but it's not critical race history. It's just uh, theory. It's just real history that they're trying to erase, just like they're trying to erase the Nakba. Well, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Now, Kevin McCarthy himself uh, might be from California, but his caucus, the people who put him into office, at least for the time being as speaker, are disproportionately from Texas, from Florida, from South Carolina, from Alabama, from Mississippi, from the Old South, in other words, from the citadel of slavery, then the citadel of Jim Crow, which, as you said, uh, played an outsized role in terms of maintaining Jim Crow and apartheid in the District of Columbia up to the point where we had to mobilize globally in order to cause that system to begin to erode and to retreat. And I dare say that if the kinds of transgressions that Kevin McCarthy is involved in today 
are going to be eroded and forced to retreat, once again, it will require an international mobilization. Uh, once again, it will require a district militancy. Uh, once again, it will require a stout level of organization. Right, right. And, you know, as we, we think about that in terms of the last fight against apartheid, and certainly Israel is an apartheid state, um, we think about uh, the recent passing of Randall Robinson, which we mentioned a few weeks ago, and and how we can carry on his legacy to, uh, to fight uh, this new regime of apartheid. I think that the South African uh, foreign South Africa's foreign minister recently made that uh, point in a, in a public statement about uh, South Africa uh, condemning uh, certainly the most recent levels of violence and attacks against uh, the occupied people of, of Palestine. So we are talking about Gerald Horn's latest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. It's very exciting, actually, to be able to present this book here for a D.C. audience, a, an audience here in the District, Maryland, Virginia region. This region is so rich in the history of not only this country, but particularly for African-Americans. And, you know, living here for the uh, more than 25 years now, I feel the history here. And this new book by Gerald Horn, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000, really brings that home. And, Gerald, I think that I want to wind up um, our conversation with talking a little bit more about Howard University and maybe just taking it up um, as far as you want to go to, you know, to kind of cap off this por portion of our discussion, because we will return to it over the next couple of weeks to to continue talking about the book. But, you know, when people think about Howard University today, they don't really think about radicalism. We know that there was a tremendous period during the 1960s when Howard University certainly was a site of resistance and the Black Power movement. Very often today, it is seen as the kind of the uh, the home base of you know future MBAs and the managerial class and uh, you know perhaps entre black entrepreneurs you know uh, young black capitalists, but um, and you know there are s some activists there now opposing the university's acceptance of a ninety million dollar military research contract. So talk more about Howard University and radicalism in the early years. You know, as you mentioned, it was founded in 1867 during Reconstruction. And so people may not be as familiar with that history. Well, in many ways, Howard University has shown two faces to the public. One is the face that you were just articulating, that is to say, developing uh, folks for the managerial class. But it's also played an important role in the growth of U.S. imperialism. I mean, one of the stories I tell is about how Howard University was essential in terms of developing U.S. officials who played a neocolonial role in Liberia, Liberia, West Africa, uh, being the state that was founded in no small measure by those who wanted to deport the free Negro population during the days of slavery. And then Howard University subsequently 
subsequent to the uh, abolition of slavery, uh, played a role in developing neocolonial black officials to play a role in terms of uh, disciplining, if you like, uh, the uh, black population of that state. But on the other hand, as we all know, uh, Howard University has played a role in terms of fighting Jim Crow. I think of Charles Hamilton Houston, uh, the lawyer who served as the leader of Howard Law School during his heyday, uh, training a cadre of civil rights lawyers. I think of student activists, uh, for example, the man once known as Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, who was quite heroic uh, with regard to his face-to-face confrontations with Jim Crow, uh, not only in Alabama, where he is most renowned, but also in Maryland. Uh, from his base uh, on campus uh, at the Hilltop. And I think of other uh, proud alumni of Howard University, uh, such as the writer and intellectual, uh, once known as Leroy Jones and Mary Baraka, who, as you know, played a very instrumental role in uh, developing the Black arts movement, developing the uh, philosophy and theory of Black power. I talk quite a bit about the role of the Black Panther Party uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s at Howard University. So Howard has a very proud and glorious history to look back upon. And I dare say that that proud and glorious history provides a solid foundation for a resurgence of the kind of radicalism that once characterized the hilltop. All right. So maybe that's a a great point to end on because we are talking about this new book by uh, Gerald Horn, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000.
Well, I think we're running out of time, but I want to, Gerald, if there's one other thing you that's burning that, you know, I didn't ask you about, or you want to say in conclusion, uh, now's the time. Well, we spent most of our time talking about uh, the Jim Crow era, but I would be remiss. And although I know we're going to talk again about this book, but I did not mention what might be called the Marion Barry era, uh, speaking of the late former mayor and his instrumental role in terms of trying to bring equity in terms of citywide government employment, for example, his role in terms of fighting against the pestilence of racism and the legacy of Jim Crow and the district. And of course, the instrumental role of the organization that he was involved in, speaking of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which had a formidable and strong base uh, in Washington, D.C. in the 1960s and developed cadre that helped to knock down the walls of segregation, not only in the district, but in Maryland and in Virginia uh, as well. Absolutely. And yes, I am looking forward to continuing to talk about Gerald Horn's latest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald, and we'll pick up our conversation next week. Thank you for inviting me. And that will do it for today's special episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current or past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, on patreon.com 
forward slash on the ground show. The music we played this hour included Harvest for the World by the Isley Brothers and In Common, Walter Smith III, Matthew Stevens, Joel Ross, Harish Raghavan, and Marcus Gilmore. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.